The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Desire that wonderful work this morning, music team. Thank you so much. I love the selection of songs, uh, not just because I'm a fan of hymns, but uh, just for the flow, how everything works so well to get us to this point where we now go to John chapter number 10 and we reflect on uh, the Word of God. So uh, back to John 10, uh, Adrian read for us so wonderfully, um, as did Todd. Todd, don't want to leave you out there. Um, Put us, I'm not going to. Somebody's going to put a slide up on the screen for us. It's a question, or a couple of questions, I guess, uh, from the devotional Three Months with John by Eusto uh, Gonzalez. I think the questions are helpful as an introduction to what we want to talk about today. The Good Shepherd gives up his life for his sheep. Jesus has given his life for me, and I still dare to give him only part of my life trying to hold back a corner for myself. Justo Gonzalez is asking himself a question, then he asked me, and he asked you, do you do the same? Do you do the same? And then he uh, suggests for us to consider those dark corners that we still retain for ourselves without surrendering them to Jesus. And then he does something I think is just brilliant. He says, think also of the apparently bright corners, your ambitions, your success, your career that you also withhold. The good shepherd has given up his life for the sheep. And if we claim him as our shepherd and believe ourselves to be his sheep, are we holding back from him dark things or bright things from our lives? These questions provide insight into what we want to talk about about today from John's Gospel, uh, because, uh, you know, whether we like to admit it or not, the Gospel of John is about a great war between darkness and light. It's been one of my contentions uh, that I've been working on, is that the way that the Gospel is often presented is too touchy-feely. A good man doing good things for people that needed it done and got misunderstood at the end cost him his life and we need to carry on his memory. Not a warrior who comes as light into the darkness, the word made flesh dwelling among us. Not a shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. And if you think about John's gospel beginning in chapter number one and you go, all the way to chapter number 19, you really, uh, if you read it insightfully, you will find 
the narrative telling us about the darkness that then uh, reaches its uh, highest expression in the God-forsakenness of the death of Jesus in the three hours of darkness on Golgotha's hillside. The death of Jesus by crucifixion. And then if you, you step back and you read John's Gospel, the other thing that you need to pick up on and what you can remember is that as John tells this story, this conflict between light and darkness, he uses the various feasts and festivals of Judaism to illustrate the conflict. And through those various feasts and festivals to show us how the light of God's salvation will come to overtake the darkness. You might think of that wonderful story uh, in uh, chapter number 2 where Jesus overcomes the darkness of the embarrassment at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And you remember what he does. He changes the water into wine. Very good. You're, you're with me. Good. And then that, that conflict continues in chapter 5. He overcomes the darkness of disease. He heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. And he does it during a feast. And then in chapter 7, he, he confronts the darkness of the unbelief of the Jewish leadership during a feast, the Feast of Booths, that, that celebration that uh, commemorated the way that God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness on their way to the land of promise. And then in chapter number 9, he removes darkness by giving physical sight to the blind. And here in chapter 10... John uses another feast, and that is the Feast of Dedication, which we know in our vernacular today as Hanukkah, the Festival of Light. And Jesus confronts the darkness during this Festival of Light. And this is the way John tells his story. And if you read the Gospel of John, you need to read it insightfully as a conflict that is revealed through religious feasts and festivals and also through one particular day, and that is Sabbath. Because the light of the world who came created division by healing people specifically on the Sabbath. And this, of course, is what light does. When darkness and chaos covered the face God said in Genesis 1, let there be light, and there was light, and that light separated the darkness from the light. God called the light day, and, and, he, and somebody got this wrong this morning down at St. James, but that was an early service. He called the darkness night. Good, you all got that, right? The light day, the darkness night. But when you, when you get into John's gospel, you see the light of the world coming, and he's coming into spiritual darkness. And he is creating, or at least revealing, the conflict that exists, and he does so through, um, you know, not intentionally, but kind of uh, stirring up the darkness, stirring up the conflict by healing on the Sabbath. But of all of the things that Jesus did, the one thing that comes to the very top of the list, and it's, 
here in John 10 is when Jesus not only disregarded the Sabbath, but then seemed to disregard the Sabbath, but then when Jesus laid claim to deity. And that created such a furor that the Jewish leadership were ready to put him to death immediately. They picked up stones to stone him. It was that statement by Jesus that he was equal with God. The Jews said he made himself out to be God and blasphemy is deserving of death. And we should be aware of these things because as John tells the story of Jesus, God who came in the flesh, he uses these things that were considered to be sacred and considered to be good to reveal points of conflict between the darkness and the light. And we pull that forward and we drop it in our little world today. We see the same thing. That the words and the works of Jesus confront people not only in the ordinary days of life, but also in the feasts and festivals, even in American culture and in American society. What do you think people are thinking when they, you know, maybe here in, uh, you know, on July 4th celebrations, you know, songs that have a Christian at least nuance to them or that are explicitly Christian or claims about our nation and its heritage? How do they celebrate their independence in light of our nation's stated dependence on God and Christ. And that, you see, that reveals an inner conflict, an underlying conflict that has always been part of our nation, uh, how darkness responds in conflict to light. You know, six months from now or so, this is really going to show itself to be true when in the malls and in the stores and on the radio... People will be humming along with Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King, without giving one thought to what those words mean when they celebrate Christmas. And so just as John told his story and brought it through these feasts and festivals and holy days and revealed the conflict that Jesus brought, light of the world coming into the darkness, the darkness that we're celebrating these things, but really not understanding what they meant and that Jesus himself was the fulfillment of those things, just as Americans do today. To think about things that have Christianity attached to them but never really respond to Christ and the conflict then that exists within our own nation, within our own, you know, um, little towns and villages. And the rejection that the Jews gave is the rejection that we see right across our land today, and we should anticipate this. Sometimes it's strong opposition. I saw the videos of people gathering around a man who was reading the scripture in public, renouncing the demonstrations that were going on, and the horde grabbed his Bible, cursing at him, and tore the pages right in front of him. So this, this exists, this conflict, it exists. Strong opposition, but in most cases, lukewarm rejection. Oh, if you want to go to church, that's fine. If you want to do these things, that's fine. I'm not really interested. Good for you, not for me. Thank you very much. Just lukewarm 
rejection. But then we should also anticipate that as the light shines into the darkness, that the power of the Holy Spirit will be revealed and that people will be convicted of their sins and people will begin to respond to the gospel and that our towns and villages will indeed, by God's grace, one day be gloriously saved to the glory of God through the faithful proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Just as we hope, as we proclaim this good news in this room every week, people will not walk away from it, but the people will hear it and respond to it and give their lives to it. You know, why should we have this kind of hope? Because the one who is the light of the world is also the one who is the good shepherd of the sheep, and he came into our world. And this brings me then to the first point I want to talk about. What does it mean that Jesus is the good shepherd? What does it mean that Jesus is the good shepherd? You know, the very idea of a shepherd has been reduced to, a, to the picture that we often find in children's Bibles of, you know, an, an image of Jesus and he's carrying a little lamb you know, on his shoulders. And that, that kind of is how most people think about the shepherding image. That's not wrong, by the way. It's just incomplete. If that's your only understanding of Jesus the Good Shepherd, you have an incomplete understanding. To complete the picture, we need to listen carefully to the way that Jesus envelops himself into the meaning of the illustration that he is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. In verse 12, he says, in contrast to the hireling, the one who is not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. And cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and have known of mine. So this image of just a shepherd carrying around a sheep that, you know, needs to be taken care of is incomplete. Our shepherd is out in front of the sheep, giving his life for the sheep. He is defending the sheep. He is protecting the sheep. He is providing for the sheep. Jesus encompasses himself in a complete way as the shepherd who guards, even guarding their eternal destiny by giving his life for them, unlike the hirelings, the day workers, who aren't going to give their lives, those aren't my sheep, I'm not giving my life for them, and they run when the wolf comes. And so we remember then it is to this work of giving his life for the sheep that Jesus was appointed. The faithfulness of Jesus to his vocation as Israel's shepherd continues in faithfulness even to those who would come from outside of Israel. As Jesus said, right? There are those from another part uh, outside and I'm going to bring them in and we're going to have one flock. This is what he says in verse 16. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them, I, uh, them also I must bring. And they will hear my voice, and there will be one fold and one shepherd. You and I are here today because 
the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep understood that you and I, non-Jews, were also going to be part of his flock and his death covered our sins. His life brought us into this fold where there is one shepherd. We heard his voice and we too followed him. And you know, this work then that Jesus does really is the starting place for confidence and joy for the Christian. We are not here because of us. We are here because of him. It is the work that God has done in Jesus Christ that gives us confidence. Jesus didn't say, you know, clean yourself up a little bit better and maybe I'll let you into my fold. Out in front of the sheep, Jesus went and gave his life so that he would call us to himself and that we, by God's grace through faith, begin then to follow him. And this takes me to the second thing I want to talk about. And it has to do with the question we asked earlier from, from the devotional by Justo Gonzalez. You know, in light, in light of this good news, and it is really good news, by the way, right? That the good shepherd has given his life for the sheep. I mean, it's, it's just a question. Why doesn't everyone just believe and follow? I mean, he's good. He, 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 saved, he saved a family from embarrassment by turning water into wine. He, he met a, a desperate woman at the well, at Jacob's well, and gave her water and the water of life. He, he took a man that had been trying to get into the pool of Bethesda and provided for him and healed him. He took a man blind since birth and he gave him his sight. I mean, why wouldn't, right? I mean, why wouldn't people follow wholeheartedly? Why do I still have dark corners in my life that I hold back? Why do I have bright corners of ambition that I'm afraid to give to God? Why do you? Why do we? And I, and I think it's an important question to ask. But to get to the answer, we've got to take a, a look at the larger picture, the story, the narrative that John is telling. And, and if, you, if you think about it from uh, verse number 21 into verse number 22, there's about a three-month break. Now, John doesn't tell us this. John doesn't tell us that between verse 21 and verse 22, there's about a two to three month break. Because John isn't so much concerned about a timeline as he is about telling a story that has deep theological roots. Starting back in chapter number nine, when he heals this blind man somewhere in the, the feast of, of, of uh, booths, and then he moves that story forward and the first part of John 10 is connected then to John chapter number 9 in kind of a timeline. But then when you get to uh, verse number 21, right, or, or verse number 19, you have this division, right? You have a division among the Jews. And what are they, what are they divided about? Many of them said, he hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, these are not the words of him that hath the devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? 
That all connects back to chapter number 9 when almost those same words were spoken when Jesus heals the blind man and the blind man keeps getting interrogated. You remember he keeps getting interrogated by the Jewish leadership. How did you receive your sight? Tell us the truth. And he says, well, Jesus did it. And they say, well, Jesus couldn't have done it. And then the, the blind man says, like, well, you know, all I know is that I was blind and now I can see. I don't know what you guys got going on, but here's, you know, here's my story and I'm sticking to it. And you remember what they did to him? They, they threw him out of the synagogue. They threw him out. And John, uh, John picks up on that in that conversation ending with verse number 21. And then he, he doesn't, so, oh, and a couple of months go by. But he notes it because in Jerusalem now, it is the Feast of Dedication and it's winter. And where do we find Jesus? He's walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now this is, this is very important, but you've got to dig a little deep to, to get why it's important. So what's the division? Jesus is a devil. He's a demon. That's how he, he's got this power to make blind people see. And, and, and then, well, that, how can that be true, you know? How can a demon make blind people see? And especially the guy that we knew was blind. And then John links this to this confrontation in verses 22 and 23. The Feast of Dedication, which we know as, um, as Hanukkah, was instituted after the exile. Remember that the Jews were taken away in the Babylonian captivity and uh, under the Babylonians, the temple was destroyed. And they went off into exile and under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, they come back, they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the second temple was constructed. And this, this Solomon's portico or porch walkway, um, rightly named, right? And here's why. Because the only remaining part of the first temple was connected with uh, this porch, Solomon's porch. And here is Jesus, not by accident, not by accident. And he's walking there, and all of the lights are blazing, the feast, right, the festival of lights. And here is the light of the world, linking together the glory of of the first temple with the second temple. And he's saying these things now come together in me, the light of the world. But out come the, out come the lawyers, because right in that area were rooms where the lawyers met to debate the law, Mosaic law. And, and they come out, and John picks up on this, and when they come out, what do they say to him in verse number 24? How long dost thou make us, make us doubt why won't you tell us plainly whether you are the Christ or not? That's a, that's a really important question for today as well as for back then. Is Jesus really who he says he is? And, and so what, what, do they, what do they say? If thou be the Christ, end of verse 24, tell us plainly. Jesus answers, well, I told you and you believe not. I mean, it it's just lines up, right, with what did, the, what did the blind guy say? Hey, I was blind, now I can see. Why can't you understand that? Jesus says, 
I've shown you my works. I have spoken my words, but you do not believe. I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me, but ye believe not. Why? Verse 26, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I mean, that's a tough truth. But a necessary truth for us to understand as we live in this ongoing spiritual conflict of darkness. See, I, I think what John is reinforcing with his audience is that the rejection of Jesus has nothing to do with the inadequacy of Jesus, either his words or his works. And I think that's important because the more the church is squeezed, the more it's kind of pushed to the side, we are very tempted to leave the ministry model we presented last week out of 2 Corinthians 4. We're very tempted to leave that because it doesn't seem to be working. A ministry of reconciliation that leans firmly into the declaration of the lordship of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his crucifixion and his resurrection, instead of, you know, trying to deceive people with clever words, and instead of trying to gain a gathering through deceitful means, it it makes us sometimes feel inadequate. Well, maybe it's us. Maybe, you know, a replacement team is needed. Maybe, maybe we're not enough to reach this area. If you ever feel that way, always try to think in your mind, wait a second. The Lord of glory, God in the flesh, was rejected. They did not believe his works and they did not believe his words. And yet he remained faithful to his task. I mean, try to get this image in your mind. I know it's, it's July and it's warm and everything, but here it's winter. Darkness surrounds the scene. Lights, though, are everywhere. And this portico bumping up against the, the only remaining part of the original temple, the one that Solomon was responsible for and, and bore his name, the location where these Jewish doctors of the law would come. And here is Jesus, the light of the world, the good shepherd of the sheep, walking in the midst of the festival of lights. And John uses this to complete the story that began in John 9 with this blind man being healed, and now the darkness is so palatable, so there that these lawyers, these people who should know the Scriptures, can't see Jesus, the light of the world. Hey, Christians, by the way, this is the world we live in. This is our nation. These are our communities. In some cases, our relatives, our friends, people you may work with or your kids go to school with, whatever it might be. And this this condition of spiritual blindness remains. And these Jews, as they come around and ask, it's a ridiculous question. It It is a ridiculous question. You could not have had a more plain presentation than the one that Jesus himself gave. And I believe that through the work of the Holy Spirit that the church gives today as well. You're blind because you won't see. You know, one of the questions I've struggled with as I bring this to a close is, so how do they connect 
How does this, this, this arc with these two illustrations of light and darkness and shepherding connect? And, and, and here's, here's what I've come up with. You may, you may come up with something different or, or better, but here's what I've got. You know, light is good, right, when it comes. Not every morning, but this morning, out on the side porch, pre-dawn, the birds, the birds kind of sing in the light. It's really beautiful. As they're waking up, and then suddenly the light comes, and it was a soft rain this morning falling. It was just wonderful. It was wonderful. It was very warm, very assuring. But you know, there's a lack of a personal quality to light. Like, you can't stare at the sun, right? I mean, please, in case you didn't know that, don't ever try it. You can't stare at the sun, right? There's an impersonal quality to light. But the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep is entirely personal. So you have this great power of light conflicting with darkness and you have this image of a shepherd protecting and providing and guarding and caring for his sheep. And as those in our church who have worked with sheep and still do work with sheep know that that the, the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep is entirely personal from lambing to growing to caring, protecting, feeding. The shepherd is present through all of it. And to the church that is existing in America in very troublesome times and we, we tend to get worried about things, this cosmic war between light and darkness and we are drawn into that war. I just want to remind you, we don't have to despair. We have a good shepherd who has given his life for the sheep. He knows our name. We know his voice. We follow him. Just like the blind man begging on the side of the road and Jesus comes to him and heals him and tells them to wash in the pool and the man follows Jesus. That same relationship is ours as we are moved out of our darkness and into the glory of God's light. We have a shepherd who leads us, who guards us, who protects us. But remember, the good shepherd also knows those who are not his because they refuse him. And, and he conflicts with that. And he exposes their unbelief. And on judgment day, they will be left without excuse. So why they did not believe the words and the works of Jesus, and why they did not follow Jesus. And this is the story that John tells. And he tells it so that the world would know that the bread of life who is the light of the world, is the door through which we enter into God's salvation. And when we enter into that salvation, we hear the shepherd's voice who calls us and we follow him. And we move from our blindness and we move to our sight. And the conflict within us then can get resolved. By his glorious light, the conflict within us, as he personally loves us, personally cares for us, as the prelude uh, encouraged us to remember the king of love my shepherd is whose goodness never fails whose goodness never fails so I'm going to take you back to the question by Eusto Gonzalez the good shepherd gives up his life for his sheep Jesus has given his life for me and I still dare 
to give him only part of my life, trying to hold back a corner for myself? That's a Ken Prater question. Ken Prater asked that, asked that question uh, more often than I'd like to admit. How about you? Think you're too old to have to ask that question? You're not. You think you're too young to have to be concerned about that question? You're not. Are there dark corners that you're retaining for yourself? Are there bright corners of ambition, success, or career that you're withholding? If so, remember, we have a good shepherd who has given his life, and we can trust him. We can trust him. Think about our baptism, that we have identified with this good shepherd, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. As we pause for prayer and consider these things this morning, may God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, help us to surrender day by day to the good shepherd, has given his life for the sheep. Let's pray. Father, um, I confess that uh, I struggle with these things. And I thank you, Father, for the help you give. And as an under-shepherd of the good shepherd, I offer myself to the sheep. and just want to let them know that if they struggle, let us struggle together. And if counsel is needed, let them come for counsel. If prayer is needed, let them come for prayer. And although we'll miss uh, the Lord's Supper together today, let us remember that each time when we gather around it, we gather around the one who gave his life for the sheep. I'd encourage you to take just a few moments before Mike comes and leads us in a prayer how maybe you need to respond to uh, God's word today. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.